Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 2, Job chapter 2, and you'll need a Bible if you want to follow along, and we hope you do want to follow along, so the guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. They'll get a Bible to you that's marked at the book of Job, and you can keep that Bible as our gift to you because we want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. Job chapter 2. One of the questions that a new Christian often asks is whether he or she should continue their relationships with their still non-Christian friends. My answer to that is you certainly seek to remain friends and continue to demonstrate your appreciation and love and enjoyment of those friends. After all, it may be in that context that God will use you to bring them to faith in Christ as well, whether sooner or later. But I also tell them this when they ask that question. I say, don't be surprised if at some point they no longer want to be your friend. Because you no longer want to do the same things you once did. And I say that because depending on the people involved, the relationship may for years have meant getting together for enjoyments that they hold in common. With regularity, they may gather and do what they all like. And then one of them goes and spoils it by coming to Jesus. And he no longer wants to go to the same places or engage in the same activities because he does not believe they're pleasing to his new Lord, Jesus. The Christian will then often find that his so-called friends no longer call. In effect, those people are saying... I no longer like the fact that you don't like doing what we used to do. The Christian is saying, I no longer like doing that, but I still like you. I no longer want that, but I still want you. But by pulling away, those others are saying, if you don't want that, then I don't want you. Our relationship was really based on what we did, not on who you are. Now, you see a similar superficial kind of affection from a child who demands things from his parents, parents who make the mistake of trying to buy the child's affection by giving him what he wants. And when at some point those parents dare to say no, the child rejects them in one way or another, perhaps storming off to their room or to their friend's house, or perhaps the child who just said last evening, I love you, yells, I hate you. You see, friends, one way to gauge how valuable someone is to you is for you to imagine what it would be like if the circumstances of that relationship changed. What is their worth to you when they no longer do what you like or no longer give you what you want? What will be your relationship with them when all is gone except them? You remember the story of the prodigal son, right? The son demanded of his father, give me my inheritance now. I can't wait for it until you die. And in effect, he was saying, I wish you were dead now. In effect, he was saying, what you have is more important to me than you are. Now, we do this with people in our relationships. We value them to the extent 
that they give to us. But we also, and more importantly, do it with God. We love God when all is to our liking. But when circumstances change, how do we react to them? For many, it's the reaction of the teenager. We may not have the nerve to mouth the words, I hate you, to God. But we somehow think it's okay to be angry with him. And there are no shortage of armchair theologians and counselors who will tell you that it's all right to vent to the Almighty. They will say things like, and I'm going to quote from an article that's quoting people who dispense this kind of so-called Christian advice. Remember, anger just is. It's neither good nor bad. It's okay to feel angry at God. He created us to have angry emotions. Or, God often lets us down and disappoints us. How else can we explain the heartaches of life when hard things happen? He could have stopped it, and he didn't. So your anger is understandable. Or, you can vent your anger at God. He's a mature lover, and mature love can can absorb the anger of the beloved. Don't be afraid to tell him exactly what you feel and think. God wants an honest relationship. Or lastly, you need to forgive God. Forgiveness is the opposite of anger. And you need to let go of the hostility in order to be at peace in yourself and start building a trusting relationship with God. Forgive him for the ways that he let you down. So how would you react if all that was left was God. You'll know whether you truly love God by your reaction when He is all that's left. And then you'll know whether you love the giver or whether or not you love only His gifts. And Jesus taught that that kind of commitment is essential to being His follower. In Luke chapter 14, He said, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be My disciples. Now, in the first two weeks of our series in the book of Job, we've seen that Job was called by God to suffer horrendous losses in a short period of time as a way to test his devotion to God. Now, though all of us are called to be willing to give up all for Christ, few of us, in reality, are actually called to do so. In the life of the normal Christian, it will not be that everything is taken and we're left with no one and nothing. Instead, in the more likely course, there are going to be episodes of suffering and pain and trial. And perhaps something constant and chronic may may plague us. But it will be in one area of life, not all areas. But whether it's only some of our circumstances or all, or whether temporary or permanent... These trials reveal what we believe about God and what we believe about his worth to us. So we're going to continue to see that now in the book of Job. And I think you can tell from what I've already said, if you've been listening and taking to heart, that we need God's help, don't we, to apply this. Because it's hard. Because it's calling us to be disciples of Jesus. Come what may. And so let's ask the Lord to help us as we look to continue to learn from God's dealings with Job and Job's reaction to God's work. Father, thank you for gathering us yet again on this Lord's Day. 
and allowing us in the sacredness of these moments to open your word, to open our hearts, to focus our minds on who you are and what you have told us in your word. Lord, you are instructing us in these moments. And so help us to give heed and help us to hear your words as precious gold. And help us to harbor them in our hearts and apply them in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Job chapter 2 and verse 1. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them to present himself before him. Now, back in chapter 1, we saw in verses 6 through 9, the same scene had taken place earlier. And that was when the original challenge was made between God and Satan. Verse 6 of chapter 1 says the same thing as chapter 2 and verse 1 that we just read, that the angels came to present themselves before God and Satan came with them. But then notice verse 8 of chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and who shuns evil. Now notice in that verse that it's God, not Satan, who first focuses on Job. (laughs) Satan comes and presents himself, and it's God who says, Hey, what about Job? Have you seen that guy? And as we're going to be reminded as we go through in the weeks to come, the book of Job, Job doesn't know anything about any of this. This is all taking place in heaven and on earth. Job doesn't know that this contest is taking place. He doesn't know that God is the one who actually brought him up. But God says to Satan, have you considered Job? Now, why does God do that? Whenever you're seeking an answer to the question, why does God do something? Or why does God allow something? The ultimate answer, friends, is always the same. It's always the same. To bring glory to himself. It is always God's desire in all that he does to show his character and to be praised for who he is and what he's done. And so God initiates this episode to demonstrate his supreme value. But, of course, Satan resents God's glory. Satan hates God's brilliance and his unsurpassed splendor and the idea that creatures would worship him simply because of who he is. And so Satan cynically says in verse 9 of chapter 1, Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan questions Job's motive for serving God. Does he serve you for nothing? In the title of today's message, That title is at the top of the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to take it out. And in the title of today's message, you see at the top, Satan is in effect saying, everybody has their price. Job loves the gifts more than the giver. And if you take away the gifts, he'll abandon his faith in you. God says, Satan, you need to understand you are not all that. Now, in initiating this contest, God is not looking for an answer that he didn't already have, right? God already knows the answer to every question. Instead, he is revealing the answer in the story of Job. 
The answer to the question, is God worth his creature's voluntary love and devotion simply because of who he is? God's not in suspense trying to figure out whether he's worthy. He knows he is. God's not nervous with anticipation in this contest like a young girl hoping a boy will ask her out on a date. God's not hoping that Job will pick him instead of Satan. God's revealing his worth to us, not to himself. And so the contest begins to determine whether God is indeed glorious to Job, quite apart from all that God has given to Job. And in the story of Job, it covers, as far as I can tell, all categories of loss. As far as I know, the things that we can lose fall into three broad categories. We're going to review the first two from chapter 1, and then we'll see another dimension in chapter 2. But I say in your outline that our faith, that is, what we believe, you remember faith is what we believe. So our faith, what we believe, and what we believe about God in particular, is shown in how we react to loss. And you see in the outline, we've got these three categories of loss. And the first one is this, how we react to loss of our possessions. Our belief about God, our faith regarding God, is shown in how we react to loss of our possessions. I remind you of what chapter 1 and verse 10 says. Satan says to God, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, before we move on, this is just an an aside, but an important aside for me. As you read about this encounter and this interchange between God and Satan, who is in control of this whole thing? Who brings up Job? God does. Who's giving the parameters to Satan with regard to what he can do to Job? It's God. Who's in control of this whole thing and every other thing? It's God. It's not Satan. Now, why do I bring that up? Because the TV preachers, health and wealth charlatans, they have to do something with Job. You know that? I mean, how do they preach that God wants you wealthy and then they've got God afflicting Job and taking all his stuff? And Job hasn't done anything wrong. God makes that very explicit. So how do the prosperity preachers, the prosperity gospel people, and there's a very long list of who these people are. You know that? There's Joel Osteen. There's Joyce Meyer. There's Kenneth Copeland. There's Frederick Price. There's Jerry Savelle. They're all their minions that are out there saying the same junk. And it's all false. It's a false gospel. It's no gospel at all. And you, friends, need to know if you believe the Bible, you can't believe that. Now, here's what Kenneth Copeland says about this encounter between Satan and God. Quote, God's on the outside looking in. 
He, God, doesn't have any legal entree into the earth. The thing don't belong to him. You see how sassy the devil was in the presence of God in the book of Job? God said, where have you been? Wasn't any of God's business, says Copeland. He, Satan, didn't even have to answer if he didn't want to. It's breathtaking in its heresy, isn't it? And it goes on and on and on. And they have to do this in order to preach their false prosperity gospel. They have to diminish God. They have to elevate people. They have to elevate Satan as an equal to God, even superior to God for a time period. So, friends, I'm warning you as your pastor, be careful of who you listen to. Be careful of who you read. Thank you for that aside. Now, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 1, then. We see that in one day, Job lost his 7,000 sheep, his 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys and his servants. Job lost his livelihood. It's equivalent for us to having perhaps lost, losing a business, losing our jobs. How do you react when you lose something material? How do you think and talk and act Because of what you don't have. Maybe you haven't lost it, but you're angry and dissatisfied and discontent because you never got it. You look around and see what other people have, and you have a lack of joy because of that. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12. One's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Job took the attitude... And perhaps you do as well. And if so, very good. It's only stuff. And stuff that can be replaced. But there's a progression in this testing. It starts with his possessions. But then it goes, I say in your outline. Not only to the loss of our possessions, but the loss of our people. And verses 18 and 19 of chapter 1 tell us that all ten of Job's children were killed by a tornado that hit the house at which they were celebrating the birthday of one of the sons. And so how would you react at the loss of a child? And for some, for some in this very room, that's not a theoretical question. Last week we had in attendance a pastor and his wife who were visiting. And I had the privilege of going out to lunch with them afterwards. And they told me that several years ago, they lost a teenage daughter in an automobile accident. So for now, by God's grace, this is theoretical to most of us, but not to all of us. David Paulison of the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, the editor of the Journal of Biblical Counseling, tells the story of a man who lived with anger at God due to the loss of his family. And here's what Paulison says. In 1979, I met a 70-year-old man named Armin. Intense anger at God had haunted him since childhood. His wild hatred was driving him into madness and raving. He was from Armenia and had immigrated to the United States as a young man. When he was a child, he had witnessed the murder of his people. 
He remembered his mother and other women praying fervently in their church for God to spare their lives. Ottoman soldiers came into the sanctuary and butchered the praying women. God had failed to protect people at the very moment they were calling out for his protection. Is Armin's blind, consuming anger toward God an understandable human reaction, asks Paulison. And the answer is yes. Certainly understandable. But then he asks this question. And I know these are, these are hard, friends, so, so stay with it. He asks this question, but is it wrong nevertheless? And then he says, it's a hard truth, but yes, it's wrong nevertheless. It was surely not wrong to plead for safety. It was surely not wrong to be shattered, unglued, distraught in the face of atrocities. It would surely be right to rejoice in those times when we do find safety. Armin himself, in fact, was spared when an uncle scooped him up and bolted for the hills. But he goes on to say, God never promises to protect us from all violence. Jesus himself pleaded, let this cup pass from me in the face of imminent torture, violence, and death. But he embedded his plea of faith within deeper faith. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then Jesus was cruelly executed. And God's other children have often experienced what Paul describes so vividly in Romans chapter 8. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. God does not promise that we will be free from violence. You hear that, friends? But God does promise that death is unable to separate us from his love. His love, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and that God is working out a bigger purpose. We will not find heaven on earth until heaven comes down. Countless people have faced brutal death while loving the God whose actual love is bigger than death. Armin's lifelong grievance against God was based on insisting on something God never promised. Normal, shattering grief in which hope remains had degraded into abnormal, maddening grievance in which all hope is now lost. God has promised more than what Armin demanded, not less. He's promised the resurrection of the dead and life everlasting. Armin never embraced the reality that we have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We do, in fact, have good reasons to trust God even when we don't get what we want, even when we're bemused and broken by our circumstances. It is right for us to grieve. At the end of chapter 1, the Bible tells us Job tore his clothes, he shaved his head, he grieved. It's right to grieve. But he also reminded himself in verse 21, Naked I came into this world. Naked I will depart. The Lord has given. And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's why in your New Testament in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're told we do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. We have this hope in God. We have this hope in Jesus. Now, Satan is doing this test of Job's devotion to God, but it's really an accusation against God that you're not all you think you are, God, and I'm going to prove it. 
And with regard to the possessions, Job has apparently passed the test. But now he's lost his, his people. He's lost his, his very children. His children that clearly, chapter 1 tells us, he loved deeply as he prayed for them and he sacrificed on their behalf on a regular basis. But Satan is still thinking, okay, you know, one may sacrifice and give and give for others. But we may at the same time be living for ourselves through them. And you know, that's possible. That it's really ultimately more about us than it is about them. And so he's not even going to give Job that credit. That he truly loves them rather than ultimately loving himself. He's going to get to the bottom of this. Job loves himself and is self-centered like everyone else is. Paulison then goes on and asks this question, these questions. When we don't get what we want from another person, what is our normal reaction? It's anger. And he says the same is true between us and God. So to get to the core issue, do this. Normalize your anger at God. Treat it, he says, like any other anger event in your life. This means ask yourself what it is you're not getting. So which of your expectations have been met with disappointment? What demands are you making of life? What demands are you making of God that are not being answered? Which of your firm beliefs is God contradicting? When you normalize your anger at God, you'll invariably find particular life-dominating demands that have been asserted against God and substituted for God himself. You've gone from just desiring something to demanding something of God. To use the words of that great theologian Bob Dylan, God becomes, quote, an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desires. But God refuses to run our errands. Sometimes our unmet desires that become these demands are simply wrong. An atheist is angry because God claims fundamentally his, God's claims on him fundamentally threaten the ground on which he bases his life. He insists on personal autonomy and the supreme authority of his own opinions and his willfulness. If we want to control the world, if we want independence from the one on whom we are made to depend, if we want to make up our own meaning of life, then we are fools. In these cases, the anger at God is wrong because the desires are intrinsically and entirely wrong. Other times, though, our unmet desires are for good things. For example, a child prays for her father who's dying of cancer. She gets angry at God when her father dies. She wanted him to live and God did not give her what she asked. A single woman longs to be married. She gets angry at the true God because he's not given her a husband. A parent with a rebellious teen gets angry at God because he's supposed to make our kids turn out the way we want. A man rages against God because a church leader sexually molested him when he was a, a youth. In these cases, anger at God is a more subtle kind of wrong. The object of the desire is good. The object of having life and a marriage and thriving children and trustworthy pastors. But this desire for something good has gone bad by becoming all important. Some desirable good gift has replaced God, the truly good giver. He's been reduced to the means to an end. The Lord wants us 
to rewind both the bad desires and the good desires that have gone bad. The giver of good gifts gives mercy and wisdom as his finest treasures. In giving us mercy and wisdom, in giving us Jesus Christ, he is giving us himself. Thanks be to God, 2 Corinthians 9 says, for his inexpressible gift. Our faith, friends, what we believe, in particular what we believe about God, is shown in how we react to the loss of possessions, in how we react to the loss of our people, and thirdly, I say in your outline, in how we react to the loss of our person, our person, lost to us directly. Back in chapter 2, Job chapter 2, Job, or the Lord, reintroduces Job in verse 3 in the same language that he did back in chapter 1. Verse 3 of chapter 2, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity. So what you have at the beginning of chapter 2, it says in verse 1, on another day... The angels presented themselves before God and Satan came also. So this is now another time past the day in which Job had lost his possessions and lost his children. Now another day. And Job has passed the test. And God says to Satan, hey, what about that Job guy? Pretty good, huh? Job's better than you thought he was. He still maintains, God says, his integrity. That word maintains is written in Hebrew in such a way as to suggest that not only does he maintain his integrity, his integrity is now strengthened as a result of what he's gone through. He still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without reason. God says, Satan, you incited me. That is, you suggested, you suggested that it was for selfish motives that Job served me, not because of my worth. And you suggested that he be ruined without any reason. Now notice this, that phrase, without any reason, is the exact same Hebrew phrase as back in chapter 1 and verse 9. Where Satan says to God, ask God, does Job serve God for nothing? Does Job serve God without any reason? And God now brings it back on Satan and says, you have done this to Job for nothing. And in verse 4, Satan replies, Skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Skin for skin. That was apparently a current proverb, something that people would say, probably in the marketplace in which animals would be traded and that the value of the animal would be evaluated skin for skin for skin. What's it worth? And you'll see what you're worth when you come against him personally, God. You'll see what you're worth to Job when you come against him individually now. And then Job loses three things personally. I mean, he's already had possessions. He's already lost his children but now him personally, individually. And I say in your outline, we may lose our physical well-being, 
our physical well-being. This is the point at which Job himself now is afflicted physically. Verse 7 says, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Sores over his entire body. We don't know what these sores were. The Bible doesn't tell us. It does tell us a little bit, a few verses later, that Job has to sit and use a piece of broken pottery to relieve the itching that is constantly taking place because of these sores. And he has them from head to toe. So you can just imagine if you've had a sore of any type on your body. One or two or five. Head to toe. He's afflicted physically now. And God's people are afflicted physically in this fallen world. The great apostle says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan. That is, God allowed Satan to do this thing, probably a physical thing to Paul's flesh, to torment me. Paul gives the reason for that earlier on in that chapter, so that he would be and remain humble. But because of this physical affliction that we will all experience if we live long enough, then it's easy for us to complain. It's easy for us to murmur against God because our bodies are not working as they were designed to be or they're not working as they used to work. D.A. Carson's father, Thomas Carson, was a pastor in Quebec. And as he aged, this gracious Christian man kept a diary, a journal, of his thoughts about God. And one of the things that D.A. Carson says his dad wrote down that he found out after his death when he looked at these diaries was Thomas Carson asked the Lord, quote, spare me from the sins of old men. Did you know that different ages have characteristic kinds of sins? The sins that you're tempted to commit at 60 are not the same ones you were tempted to commit at 16. But at 60, you got different ones. And it is why those of us who are aging, I'm starting to identify with all this now. And we go to church family retreat. And I play floor hockey. And I say that loosely. <laughs> I... I could pretty much stand there and watch other people run and get the, the ball to me so that I can just shoot. But don't make me move very far to have to get it. Why? Because it's more painful every year. It's one of the reasons older people complain so much. We may lose our physical well-being, but we may also lose, I say in your outline, our social well-being. Verse 8 of chapter 2, Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. Now I say social well-being here. Why? Because now you find a man who in chapter 1 and verse 3 was said to be the greatest man in the East. And this man is now sitting 
in ashes. And most believe that he is sitting in a place that was the common garbage dump, the place outside normal commerce, where those who were outcasts from society had to go. And now this is where Job finds himself. One commentator says, So abhorrent was Job's appearance that he fled society and he went outside the city and sat on the ash heap. There the city garbage was deposited and burned and there the city's rejects lived begging alms from whoever passed by. At the ash heap, dogs fought over something to eat and the city's dung was brought and burned. The city's leading citizen was now living in abject poverty and shame. His social well-being, those who appreciated him, those who, who knew him and admired him. Apparently, Job did not practice, even when things were going well, he did not practice finding his worth in what others thought of him. And that's why Job is able to continue passing this test, though confused we will see he becomes. Proverbs 29 says this, fear of man will prove to be a snare. That is, fear, reverence, awe of other people will prove to be a snare. And though undoubtedly Job appreciated the admiration and the camaraderie he had with others, he was not bound by it. We may lose physical and social well-being, and we may lose, I say in your outline, our emotional well-being. In verse 9, his wife tells him to curse God and die. Now, this is probably out of sympathetic motives. She sees the suffering that her husband is going through, and she wants to, in effect, have a case of theological euthanasia. So she tells him to curse God and die. His friends visit him, beginning in verse 11, and they have pity upon him. And we see this kind of, this kind of detachment from all that We have known emotionally with those with whom we've had these strong emotional ties in the lives of others of God's people. Again, the great apostle says in 2 Corinthians 6, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, but notice in troubles, hardships and distresses in beatings, imprisonments. Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine, yet regarded as imposters. And in all of that then, with all of this contest going on about the worth of God and why do your servants, God, really serve you and really worship you, you take away all their stuff, you take away their possessions, you take away their people, you strike them in their person and they will curse you to their, your face. In all of that, Job remains steadfast, though confused, as we will see. And Jesus asked when he walked the earth this famous question, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? So how do you do this, friends, practically speaking? In the moments that we have left, I'd like to give you some practical ways that you can give up all for Jesus even before the time of testing comes, so that when the time, not if the time, when the time of testing comes, you will be able to stand as Job did. John Piper makes some helpful suggestions with regard to, in everyday practical terms, what it means to do this. And it means at least four things. 
renouncing all, that is counting all as loss for Jesus before you lose it, means if we must choose between Christ and anything else, we will choose Christ. If we must choose between Christ and anything else, we will choose Christ. So if Jesus says the sanctity of marriage is permanent, and you don't like your marriage, you'll choose Jesus. If the kids at school don't like the stand you take for Jesus, you'll choose Christ anyway. If God says, I am to be your joy, and you are to find your contentment in me, then despite the fact that you don't have what you want and you don't have what you want that others have, you'll choose Jesus. That is, even though God does not bring us to the crisis of either or at every point, nevertheless, we're ready and we've resolved in our hearts that if the choice must be made, we choose Christ. Second, Renouncing all for Christ means that we'll deal with everything in ways that draw us nearer to Christ. Everything that comes my way, I'm going to look at it as a means to draw nearer to Christ. So that we gain more of Christ and we enjoy more of Him by the way we relate to everything that happens. So we embrace everything that's pleasant by being thankful to Christ. And we endure everything hurtful by being patient through Christ. Thirdly, renouncing all, counting all as loss for Christ means that we'll seek to deal with the things of this world in ways that show they're not our treasure. The stuff I have is not my true treasure. Instead, Christ is my treasure. That is, we'll hold things and stuff with a loose grip. We will share things generously and we'll ascribe value to things only in relation to Christ. We'll seek to live the paradox of 1 Corinthians 7 that says, Let Christians buy as though they had no goods and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. And then fourthly, Renouncing all, counting all as loss for the worth and the surpassing worth of Christ means that if we lose any or all things this world can offer, we will still not lose our joy or our treasure or our life because Christ is our joy and our treasure and our life. So when the small stuff is happening in your life, And compared to Job, everything that's happening in your life is small, right? Then we'll not grumble. Philippians 2.14 And in greater losses, we will grieve, as the Bible instructs, but we will not grieve as those who have no hope. Some of you remember the missionary Jim Elliott, the husband of Elizabeth Elliott, who was martyred ministering for Christ in Ecuador. And he said famously, a man is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. That's the way to live. That's the way to live in a fallen world. 
And that's the way, apparently, the example of Job gives us to live. Now, in your take-home truth, then, the depth of our faith is shown in what can cause us to sin. The depth of our faith, the depth of what we believe about God is shown in what it takes to make us sin. And so, friends, we're going to pray in just a moment. And I ask you to consider what's going on in your life and consider how you're handling what's going on in your life. Have legitimate desires become demands of Almighty God? Do you have illegitimate desires? Are you in a situation where you say, I have to choose between Christ and I have to choose between doing what I want, I'm going to do what I want? I urge you. I urge you urgently. Do what Jesus says. Opt for Christ. And those of you here who don't know Christ can't do what I just said. You can't. It's not you just won't, you can't. Because the only way you will have the ability to do what Job was doing, what has been preached this morning, the only way you'll be able to do that is by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you only have the Holy Spirit if you have Jesus. And so how do you gain Jesus? You recognize that you need Jesus, that you're a sinner. Recognize that he died on the cross to cover your sin and make it possible for you to have a relationship with God, to reconcile you to the God from whom we all come into this world estranged. Repent of your sin. You've been living for yourself. You've been living for your own agenda. You're going to go no longer your way, but you're going to go God's way, and you receive Jesus Christ into your life. When we bow in just a moment, you pray from your heart to God, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus has come to make the way for me to have a relationship with my God. I ask you to forgive me, to rescue me. I'm going to follow you with my life. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for meeting with us in this sacred time. To teach us from the story of your servant Job. How it is that we are to evaluate the worth of the God that we proclaim. And who we claim is our treasure and we claim is our Savior and our Lord. Lord, it is not in the pleasant things that this happens. It's easy for us to acknowledge you and to thank you and to be grateful to you when things are pleasant and going well. When things are difficult, as they will be in a fallen world, and sometimes intensely difficult. Lord, what's being tested is what we believe about you. And though things change in our circumstances, nothing changes about you. You remain precisely the same. You are still and always will be the good God who made this world and the good God who has offered us the Lord Jesus Christ as a sacrifice on our behalf so that we can have a relationship with you forever. None of that changes in our circumstances. And so, Lord, help us then to recognize that you're testing whether or not we believe that, whether or not we believe that you are as good as you have been in the past and you claim to, you will be in the future. And if we believe, help us to act upon that then, Lord. And help us not to be then as the people of this world who run after the things of this world, the temporary things. Instead, Lord, help us to, to grasp what cannot be seen. And our faith in you, the substance of the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things that are not seen, believing in you and all that you have promised to sustain us, not only sustain us, but to grow us in the midst of the trials you allow our way.
as a result of that, Lord, may we avoid sinning against you. Not only avoid sinning, but may we have joy in the midst of the darkness because of you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.